There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irvin Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. I am Michael Ian Black, your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer in chief. It is a delight, as always, to be with you, to visit the let's say sex starved Jude the uh, sex withholding Sue the cuckolded Richard Phillotson though not literally at this point because they have not consummated the act so I don't think technically that is cuckoldry but it will be fun to call him uh, to sneer at him that he is a cuck because that is what the kids do these days. They just call people cucks. And last we met, chapter the fifth had uh, given us Jude and Sue visiting various hotels and talking about whether or not they should do it as it were, and Sue feeling betrayed because he had slept with his wife and and throwing the fact that she had jumped out of a window in his face as if that was some virtuous act and not some stupid act of, I don't even know what you call it, panic? Panic? Is that it? I guess. Here's a theory. And again, you know I have not read anything about Jude the Obscure. I don't know anything about uh, what other people are saying about it or have said about it. I don't know. I I don't know nothing right now. Part of me feels like, oh, that's a mistake. Like you should have done a little research before you started reading the book. Part of me is like, no, it's like when I go see a movie, I don't want to know anything about it. I don't know. I don't want to know the plots. I don't, I don't want to know what other critics are saying. If I have an interest in the movie, I just want to see it uh, with as fresh eyes as possible. So I'm, I'm going to put out a theory that may ring true for kind of academic circles of the modern day because it's sort of it would be sort of like a you know a trendy theory i think if it's not already out there it probably is so here's my theory that sue is a lesbian okay hear me out her feelings as we know essentially reduce to she wants to be adored. This is how she phrases it. And I think she wants to adore in return. But when she receives that, when she receives adoration from people, men, that she likes and respects and even admires to a certain extent, she accepts their adoration. And we get the sense that she wants to return the adoration, but finds herself incapable, physically incapable of doing so. She chalks it up to uh, nervousness, to 
feeling manipulated to, you know, she she has a lot of excuses for why she cannot return their adoration in a physical sense. You know, she can't do it. She seems to possess a very little interest in the actual physical act of doing it. But we know how passionate she is. We know how amorous she is. She is a creature of no small amount of passion. But we can't quite cross that line into an erotic passion. She had been with a guy in college who ended up dying. She was with her husband, who she ended up leaving. Now she's with Jude, and all systems should be go. And yet, she cannot even bring to present her body uh, more to him than just the flat plane of her cheek. The next question is, well, does Sue know she's a lesbian? No. Does Hardy know she's a lesbian? Perhaps not. I suspect not. No. That just wasn't a viable literary option. I don't even know that it was a viable human option in the sense that it was something that you would put words to. We don't know what her relationships are like with other women her age. We know that, you know, we know about her relationship with Aunt Drusilla, which wasn't great, but nobody had a good relationship with her. We know that she worked with other young women in that little workshop. Uh, But when she went to buy statues out there on the hilltop eons ago, and she bought two naked figures, one male, one female. And those, of course, got ground to dust under the disapproving heel of her landlady. But she bought one of each. And we know that they gave her, those statues, an an erotic thrill. We don't know that. I was suggesting that, but I believe it to be true. So if Sue is a lesbian, if Sue is incapable of returning Jude's amorous longings for her, then that that would explain a lot about her. When last we left them, at the end of chapter the fifth, Jude had essentially redeclared his love for her, basically said, don't worry about it, sweets. Like, you know, when you're ready, you're ready. If you're not, so be it. Your will is my law. He bade her good night. The last sentence actually is, uh, well, he says, yes, sweet. He said with a sigh and bade her good night. We return to Obscure, chapter the sixth. In returning to his native town of Shaston as schoolmaster, Phillotson had won the interest and awakened the memories of the inhabitants, who, though they did not honor him for his miscellaneous acquirements as he would have been honored elsewhere, retained for him a sincere regard, which is nice. They like him. When shortly after his arrival, he brought home a pretty wife, awkwardly pretty for him if he did not take care, they said, they were glad to have her settle among them. So, you know, they were saying, eh, she's a little too hot for that dude, right? Like she, like he better, you know, keep a short leash on that one or she's going to go barking, right? And she did. For some time after her flight from that home, Sue's absence did not excite comment. 
Her place as monitor in the school was taken by another young woman within a few days of her vacating it, which substitution also passed without remark, Sue's services having been of a provisional nature only. When, however, a month had passed, and Phillotson casually admitted to acquaintance that he did not know where his wife was staying, curiosity began to be aroused, till, jumping to conclusions, people ventured to affirm that Sue had played him false and run away from him. The schoolmaster's growing languor and listlessness over his work gave countenance to the idea. So tongues are wagging at Shaston. And sadly for Phillotson, he doesn't seem to be getting over her leaving him. Um, You know, in fact, she did leave him. You know, uh, they say, jumping to conclusions, well, the conclusions that Sue had played him false. Well, in a sense, she did. I mean, she married him without loving him. Her heart belonged to another, so she thought, Jude, uh, and she ran away from him. All of that is true, but the context in which that happened is slightly different than the inhabitants of Shaston believed. Though Phillotson had held his tongue as long as he could, except to his friend Gillingham, his honesty and directness would not allow him to do so when misapprehensions as to suit conduct spread abroad. On a Monday morning, the chairman of the school committee called and after attending to the business of the school, drew Phillotson aside out of earshot of the children. You'll excuse my asking, Phillotson, since everybody is talking of it. Is it true as to your domestic affairs that your wife's going away was no visit but a secret elopement with a lover? If so, I condole with you. Don't, said Phillotson. There was no secret about it. Has she gone to visit friends? No. Then what has happened? Big nosy body. She has gone away under circumstances that usually call for condolence with her husband, but I, with the husband, but I gave my consent. The chairman looked as if he had not apprehended the remark. <laughs> What I say is quite true, Phillotson continued testily. She asked leave to go away with her lover, and I let her. Why shouldn't I? A woman of full age, it was a question for her own conscience, not for me. I was not her gowler. What's a gowler? G-A-O-E, G-A-O-L-E-R. I was not her gowler. Uh, oh, a, a jailer. Wait, let's hear how it's pronounced. Jailer. It's pronounced jailer. I was not her jailer. I can't explain any further. I don't wish to be questioned. The children observed that much seriousness marked the faces of the two men and went home and told their parents that something new had happened about Mrs. Phillotson. Then Phillotson's little maidservant, who was a schoolgirl just out of her standards, said that Mr. Phillotson had helped in his wife's packing, had offered her what money she required, and had written a friendly letter to her young man telling him to take care of her. The chairman of committee thought the matter over and talked to the other managers of the school till a request came to Phillotson to meet them privately. 
The meeting lasted a long time, and at the end, the schoolmaster came home, looking as usual, pale and worn. Gillingham was sitting in his house awaiting him. "'Well, it is as you said,' observed Phillotson, flinging himself down wearily in a chair. "'They have requested me to send in my resignation.' (laughs) (laughs) on account of my scandalous conduct in giving my tortured wife her liberty, or as they call it, condoning her adultery. But I shan't resign. I think I would. I won't. It is no business of theirs. It doesn't affect me in my public capacity at all. They may expel me if they like. If you make a fuss, it will get into the papers and you'll never get appointed to another school. You see, they have to consider what you did is done by a teacher of youth and its effects as such upon the morals of the town. And to ordinary opinion, your position is indefensible. You must let me say that. To this good advice, however, Phillotson would not listen. I don't care, he said. I don't go unless I am turned out. And for this reason, that by resigning, I acknowledge I have acted wrongly by her when I am more and more convinced every day that in the sight of heaven and by all natural, straightforward humanity, I have acted rightly. All right, calm down, Phillotson. You know, calm down, all right? The sight of heaven and all, all natural laws are not looking down on you about this. I mean, yeah, it's good. I look, dude, I agree with you, dude, bro. I agree with you that you did right by her. I agree in a sense that, uh, after making a mistake of marrying you, she did right by you because she came clean. She said, look, I got to get out of here. And, uh, you know, I also understand the town's position, not like not look in the context of of that era, not in this in this era. They'd, they'd have, you know, a lawsuit on their hands. You can't tell me what to do in my marriage. <sighs> More in a moment on Obscure. Welcome back to Obscure. We are in part four, chapter six, with Phillotson and his friend Gillingham. Let's go on, shall we? Gillingham saw that his rather headstrong friend would not be able to maintain such a position as this, but he said nothing further, and in due time, indeed in a quarter of an hour, The formal letter of dismissal arrived, the managers having remained behind to write it after Phillotson's withdrawal. The latter replied that he should not accept dismissal. (laughs) That's like what's going on in Washington right now, where they keep subpoenaing people and and the people, you know, which is which is essentially saying we order you by penalty of law to come and testify before us. And the people are like, yeah, we're good. (laughs) we just don't accept it. So that's what's happening here. He called a public meeting, which he attended, although he looked so weak and ill that his friend implored him to stay at home. When he stood up to give his reasons for contesting the decision of the managers, he advanced them firmly, as he had done to his friend, and contended moreover that the matter was a domestic theory which did not concern them. Hear, hear, pip, pip, hear, hear, pip, pip, Mr. Phillotson, pip, pip, hear, hear, aye, aye. That's how I would respond. Hear, hear, pip, pip. That's exactly what I said, of course. 
This they overruled, insisting that the private eccentricities of a teacher came quite within the sphere of their control of control as it touched the morals of those he taught. Phillotson replied that he did not see how an act of natural charity could injure morals. Uh, if you recall, if you are of in age, in the 80s, I feel like, and maybe even into the 90s, we had these conversations in this country. So when I say it could not happen today in a small town in Arkansas, in fact, I am remembering that it did. And it happened with some regularity, not on the question of adultery, but on the question of sexuality. There was a time in this country not so long ago, and I suspect in certain ways it continues to this day, that a homosexual teacher could find him or herself on the receiving end of a dismissal by virtue of their sexuality for the exact same argument that the private eccentricities of a teacher came quite within their sphere of control as it touched the morals of those they taught. So there would be you know, people saying, you can't, we don't want you near our kids because, you know, first of all, you're going to turn them gay because we know that's what the gay agenda is. And secondly, even if you don't, just the fact of your being in front of them is going to cause injury to them from a moral point of view. It's the exact same argument. And their argument would be very similar back, which is he did not see how an act of natural charity could injure morals. In this case, I mean, in the case of gay people, it would be how, the, how an act of a central, uh, an act of love could injure morals. So, you know, we're seeing echoes of our time in, in this and vice versa. I suspect uh, now the battlefront may be about... Uh, in fact, it is. It actually is uh, about transgendered individuals. So there is an, there's something going on right now. I don't know if you saw this story where some library somewhere was doing like <laughs> this, uh, I think is a weird event, but okay, uh, where drag queens read to children. I And I think it was called something like that. Um, and you would have these, you know, fantastic looking drag queens show up, read books to children. It was was protested by a small number of people in the community, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So these things never go away. Where is the injury in somebody reading a story to children? Where is the injury? And yet people feel injured for reasons that probably even they could not quite articulate. So Phillotson has just made this argument, all the respectable inhabitants and well-to-do fellow natives of the town were against Phillotson to a man. <laughs> but somewhat to his surprise, some dozen or more champions rose up in his defense as from the ground. It has been stated that Chaston was the anchorage of a curious an interesting group of itinerants who frequented the numerous fairs and markets held up and down Wessex during the summer and autumn months. Now, if you recall, 
Many episodes ago, when we first introduced Shaston, uh, Hardy had made this point, and at the time, it felt like a throwaway that the Carnies come hang out in Shaston in the off season. All the you know the the people who man the tilt whirls and the and operate the games of chance and whatnot, and maybe even the freak show habitues, or I guess inhabitants or denizens of the freak show. I don't know what you call them, the freak showers. That they all live there in the off months. And we had not heard a squeak from them until this moment. So I'm I'm happy to see their return in the story, else it would have felt like uh, a throwaway. Although Phillotson had never spoken to one of these gentlemen, they now nobly led the forlorn hope in his defense. The body include two cheapjacks, a shooting gallery proprietor, and the ladies who loaded the guns, a pair of boxing masters, a steam roundabout manager. Oh, what's a steam roundabout? Hold on, then. Hold on. We're having some definitional problems here today. Steam roundabout. Well, it's a 70s B-movie game. I don't think that's it. Oh, it's like a, um... It's like an old, it's like one of those old fashioned cars before the internal combustion engine, which operated on a steam engine. So you, 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 it looks like a car, but it's got a big funnel coming out of the, uh, of the front where the hood would be. And I guess it's uh, steam operated. And maybe it was just one of those sort of novelty items that people would get into and have a, have a fun little ride with like a hayride, but a steam roundabout Two traveling broom makers who called themselves widows who called themselves widows. Well, hold on now. Anytime two ladies are traveling around together calling themselves widows, friends, I'm telling you, there's more to the story. A gingerbread stallkeeper, a swing boat owner, and a test your strength man. I wish Hardy had written the book only about these people and we could set aside all the rest of the characters because I want to know more about every single one of these people. This generous phalanx of supporters and a few others of independent judgment whose own domestic experiences had not been without vicissitude came up and warmly shook hands with Phillotson, after which they expressed their thoughts so strongly at the meeting that issue was to the meeting that issue was joined, the result being a general scuffle, wherein a blackboard was split, three panes of the school windows were broken, an ink bottle was spilled over a town councillor's shirt front, a church warden was dealt such a topper with the map of Palestine that his head went right through Samaria, and many black eyes and bleeding noses were given, one of which, to everybody's horror, was the venerable incumbents owning to the zeal of an emancipated chimney sweep who took the side of Phillotson's party. When Phillotson saw the blood running down the rector's face, he deplored almost in groans the untoward and degrading circumstances, regretted that he had not resigned when called upon, and went home so ill that next morning he could not leave his bed. Well, finally, a little action in Jude the Obscure, a little fight scene, a little schoolroom brawl. How enervating. This is the kind of shit that you get when carnies come to town. Who knows? There might even be more fisticuffs in the next section. We'll find out. I'll keep reading after a little break here on Obscure. Obscure. 
I'm back. We're in Shaston with Phillotson. All hell broke loose at the community meeting there. And, uh, oh, fists flew and cats were, were hissing and monkeys were jumping off of chandeliers and it was just a real mess. So let's read on, shall we? The farcical yet melancholy event was the beginning of a serious illness for him. And he lay in his lonely bed in the pathetic state of mind of a middle-aged man who perceives at length that his life, intellectual and domestic, is tending to failure and gloom. Gillingham came to see him in the evenings and on one occasion mentioned Sue's name. She doesn't care anything about me, said Phillips, and why should she? She doesn't know you're ill. So much the better for both of us. Where are her lover and she living? At Melchester, I suppose. At least he was living there some time ago. When Gillingham reached home, he sat and reflected, and at last wrote an anonymous line to Sue on the bare chance of its reaching her, the letter being enclosed in an envelope addressed to Jude at the Diocesan Diocese. Okay, so it's a di- it's a diocese, so the Diocesan capital. Got it. Arriving at that place, it was forwarded to Mary Green in North Wessex and thence to Aldbrickham by the only person who knew his present address, the widow who had nursed his aunt. Three days later, in the evening, when the sun was going down in splendor over the lowlands of Blackmoor and making the Shaston windows like tongues of fire to the eyes of the rustics in that vale, The sick man fancied that he heard somebody come to the house, and a few minutes after, there was a tap at the bedroom door. Phillotson did not speak. The door was hesitatingly opened, and there entered Sue. I think I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop. Why not? Right? I mean, that's the, that just seems like the perfect place to call a rest. Sue has come to nurse her husband, Richard Phillotson, on his sick bed. The sickness being brought about, of course, by Sue. And we recall her young lover. They never did it, but you know, her young lover back in her college days, who also suffered a debilitating illness after giving his heart to Sue Bridehead. He, of course, died. Will Phillotson meet a similar fate? Impossible to say at this point, but we are galloping towards the conclusion of the book, so I'm going to say yes. Phillotson is going to end up in his grave, taken by an ailment of some sort. But of course, you and I know that the ailment is the withdrawal of love from his life. And so he is contemplating his own failure and gloom. Is it fair to say that Phillotson is a failure? Did he consider himself a failure before he met and married Sue? Or did he consider himself probably like a lot of people did in that time and and in today's time? He is a man with a respectable profession, teaching children, 
Um, Yes, he is a bachelor, but he has an interest in early Roman antiquities. He did not seem to pity himself, particularly before Sue came to visit. He had a somewhat aesthetic, but not unproductive life. And so he has basically returned to the place from uh, where he started. So why should he now consider himself a failure? perhaps because he had thought of himself as being a man with love. And when that love was withdrawn, he found himself bereft because the one thing that he needed above all others was dangled in front of him and he seized it and then it was taken away. But I don't think of Phillotson as a failure. I also feel like in many ways, he is the story's hero. In, in some ways, he is not, of course, because he himself has said that he manipulated Sue into marrying him through his position. Is there, is, there a, is there a villain in the story? You know, the good thing about this book, and perhaps the reason it's a classic among others, is that Hardy does us the favor of not presenting any character as entirely blameless or entirely blameworthy. They are all three-dimensional people. Even crusty old Aunt Drusilla, underneath the parchment-like face, underneath her wraith-like fingers, underneath her caustic remarks, there beat the heart of a good woman who had done a good thing. She had taken in Jude when his parents were orphaned, and though she wished him dead raised the lad. So we leave Phillotson on his sickbed, forlorn, feverish, wan, dismissed from his position at the school, the instigator of sorts of a scuffle, the first laugh-out-loud scuffle of Jude the Obscure, And I think purposely funny scene in Jude the Obscure. Maybe there were others that fell flat that were purposely funny. This one, I think, was purposely funny and, in fact, was funny. He has not much left. He wants only a little solace in this time. And the solace arrives in the form of Sue. What will their conversation entail? Impossible to say at this point. Will Phillotson live? Will he die? We will find out on another spine-tingling episode of Obscure. Until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. For more information on Obscure, visit our show page at Earwolf.com and be sure to subscribe to Obscure in your favorite podcast app like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you've heard, please write us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed by Craig Wedgren. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor. If you would like information about sponsoring our show, email hello at midroll.com from the wilds of Connecticut. I'm Michael Ian Black.
This is Tony Rodriguez. This is Carlos Santos. This is Raisa Licea. And this is Oscar Montoya. When our powers combine, we are Spanish Aquí Presents. We have a brand new podcast here on Earwolf, bringing you the best of the best of lo mejor of the Latinx comedy. Join us every Tuesday as we chat about what's going on in our lives, Latinx culture, and ¿qué es lo que? Lo que no está picando. Lo que te pica. Don't worry, we'll tell you what that means if you listen. We'll also be joined by a new guest every single week. We'll get to know a little bit more about their lives. Every single week. Uh-huh. And then we'll make them sit back and watch us improvise their lives right back to them. Improvisation. <laughs> Spanish Aquí Presents premieres July 16th. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Hola, Nezea. Spanish Aquí Presents. 